want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. That's where we've been in our series on the Beatitudes, which is the Latin word for blessed. And it's a list of people that Jesus pronounces blessing over at the beginning of the most famous sermon he ever preached. Perhaps the most famous certain sermon ever preached. A sermon that has shaped not only the kingdom community, but it's called the world to think differently about who is blessed and how we ought to live. I want to remind you that the Beatitudes are descriptive, they're not prescriptive. What I mean by that, of course, is that you shouldn't try to mourn more. You shouldn't try to be persecuted more. You shouldn't try to be meeker in order to get God to give something to you. Rather, Jesus looks at the crowd, the mass of humanity around him. He looks these people in the eye, and he says, no, you're actually squarely within God's reach. You're actually flourishing within God's kingdom. If you're clinging to me and living this new radical life of the kingdom that is so upside down from the world's vision and values. The reason it's so important for us at the Neighborhood Church is because we need reminding. We need to let Jesus expand our vision of who is blessed out there and who is blessed when we feel meek and mourning, persecuted and desperate. So I want to read these Beatitudes like we have each week. And tonight we're going to focus on the peacemakers or the reconcilers. So if you're with me in Matthew chapter 5, let's read what we've read each week of this series, the whole list of this upside-down vision for who is flourishing within God's kingdom. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them. And Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say thanks be to God. Any parent of siblings knows that part of your job description is as a part-time peacemaker, mediator, reconciler. You with me? Sibling parents, can you attest to this? Sibling, oh man, boy, can he attest to it. They are part-time reconcilers. They are the ones that step into the messy middle of conflict when either party has been hurt in body or in their feelings. They're the mediators that step into a situation of disputed territory, be it a toy or a tablet or in our house a marker or that one pristine last page of the coloring book that hadn't been marked up. You know what I'm talking about. It's a dangerous game to step in the middle of these two hurt and wounded parties because you have to listen. And you have to hear both sides. And you also have to pretend not to take sides. Or is it just me? And then you have to be peaceful in your peacemaking, lest you throw fuel to the fire. You with me? This is the trick, to be a peaceful peacemaker. But any parent knows that this is W O. R-K. It's work. And here's the other thing that these parents know. That this work 
must be done. Peace must be made when it's not maintained. Here's what I mean by this. Sometimes if you just let this thing go, it just won't stop. And conflict and tension has a way of exponentially growing unless it's nipped in the bud. One of the latest adventures in our parenting peacemaking is on a day that the girls were home uh, with Amy. I was out running around doing something. I was gone all day. But the girls had one of those days where they just wake up mad. Do adults wake up mad? They're just like, I think today's, it's just one of those days, right? These girls woke up on the wrong side of the bed. They were crisscrossed with each other, with the world around them, and they were just at each other all day. And so it was the kind of thing where it just started slow, but it was just exponential. And, it, and every five minutes, it seemed, they were running up to Amy and talking about how, oh, she's just making me so mad and pleading her case. And then the other one would come in five minutes later, no, but she, no, but she. And finally, Amy just said, look, here's the deal. She decided to have a mediation. She sat them down in our living room, both on the couch, and she said, listen, we've been trying to tell you how to communicate your feelings. You've got to tell us how you feel. You've got to tell us what's going on. But I don't want you to tell me anymore. I want you to tell your sister. And so Nora looks at Emma. Emma looks at Nora. And Emma starts first, the eldest. She says, okay. And Amy goes, okay, remember, I feel. So then Emma goes, I feel like you're annoying. And then Nora looks at Emma, and she goes, well, I feel like you hate me. At this point, Amy goes, okay, we need to work on what feelings are and the difference between thoughts and feelings, but that's for another time because both of these precious little girls start to get upset. They start to tear up. Especially when Nora goes, I feel like you hate me. And then Emma looks at her baby sister and goes, I would never, ever say that. How could a big sister even feel that? Nora, I love you. And then the Oprah moment happened. And Nora starts crying, and Emma starts crying, and Amy starts laughing, and they start <laughs> hugging. And it was this breakthrough moment that we're going to remember when they're teenagers and they really do hate each other. Um, but at least this kind of peacemaking was effective this day. When peace, it's work. This is the trick. Passive, cheap peace is to just hang out and pretend that everything is okay. But Jesus is speaking to the ones who step into the middle of the crosshairs to mediate, to reconcile, to bring two parties together. So tonight's beatitude is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We're going three directions tonight, three chunks we're going to be looking at. The first is, what is it that Jesus is describing, right? If these are descriptive and not prescriptive, what is it that Jesus is describing? The second thing we're going to do is, okay, well, do we fit the description? This is that gut check moment. If we were in the crowd and Jesus is pronouncing blessings, do the kingdom people of today fit the bill? Thirdly, if not, if we're tried and found wanting, what are some practical ways that we can live up to this description? So first, what exactly is Jesus talking about? Beyond brokering treaties between seven-year-olds and five-year-olds, what might Jesus be describing when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is our core idea of what I think Jesus is describing this evening. The peacemakers are the ones who work at the family business and who bear a divine resemblance. I think this beatitude, as countercultural as it is today, 
in a day of division and violence and war, as countercultural as it is today, you've got to understand it was very controversial and countercultural in Jesus' day. You may remember one of the disciples, his name was Simon. Not Simon Peter, but the other one. Do you know who I'm talking about? Simon the what? The zealot? You guys saying zealot? Zealots were a faction of revolutionaries who were working at their goals violently. They were an oppressed people. The Bible is a book written from oppressed peoples. And they were these Jewish revolutionaries that were almost like a terrorist sect. One of them gave his life to Jesus, begins to follow him, to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. And he sits down on the mountainside, he and the other disciples with the front row seat. And then Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And at once he might thinking, yeah, I'm making peace, one violent murder at a time. But as we see in the remainder of this sermon, specifically in Matthew chapter 5, and later in Jesus' life, we see what a kingdom vision of peacemaking looks like. And it's a peacemaking in which the end always justifies the means, but the means much match the end. The end is God's shalom, holistic well-being, not violence. So the means to peace must be peaceful. This is the clear call of the kingdom, and it was modeled by Jesus. It is ridiculously impractical to turn the other cheek. But Jesus never called us to what's easy. He called us to his sacrificial love that is the kingdom ethic. This beatitude was shocking and countercultural then, just as it is now. And not only is it nonviolent and restorative and sacrificial, this kind of peacemaking, you need to understand that it's also beyond nice. It's beyond a cheap peace that says, hey, I'm going to say one thing with my mouth. But in my heart, I'm going to hold on to resentment. But I look nice. It's also beyond appeasement. Appeasement says, okay, okay, fine, just take it, take it, take it, take it, take it. And then you leave injured, broken, and caring, and harboring bitterness. Let me just get you off my back. That's cheap peace. The other cheap peace is the 2019 version of just tolerance. Just because we're not fighting does not mean we're not united. Excuse me. Just because we're not fighting does not mean we're family. Does not mean we're united. Do you catch my drift? What Jesus is speaking of, the person that Jesus is describing, is the person who actively steps into the crossfire to work toward shalom. In the littlest ways with two red-headed girls on a couch, and in the broadest ways to renounce war and violence and to work to move the earth to look more like heaven. It cost Jesus his life to reconcile the world to God and to show us the way to live reconciled to one another. But this over and over is the clear call of the New Testament. God's work is toward shalom, and we ought to join the family business. Y'all have heard this word shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word for peace. If you read it in the Old Testament, in places like Isaiah 52, you see the word peace. But really, it's beyond nice, beyond appeasement, beyond tolerance. There's a wholeness. It's holistic. It conveys welfare, a balance, restoring balance where there's imbalance. And it's about well-being, where all parties aren't just not fighting, but they look like family. It's the good work that God is up to to restore all things in the biggest ways and the littlest ways. One of the ways that I was aware of an imbalance in a tiny way this week was spending time up at the rock Thursdays uh, after school where the kids come and gather and they get um, a meal 
uh, from a ministry in DFW. They do homework help. They've been doing this for years and years and years. Isaac and Emily, I'm sure you guys have been there loads of afternoons for years and years and years. So we've been hanging out up there on these afternoons, and one of the girls had just had a birthday. And so she was telling us about the cake that she was able to eat and how excited she was, and she just turned 10 years old. And so we sang happy birthday, and everybody was asking about it. And I said, well, hey, I said, did you, you know, do anything else special for your birthday? I said, did you get a present maybe? She said, well, no, I didn't get a present. And she said it just pretty matter-of-factly. Like she wasn't really crestfallen or like sad about it because I think she didn't expect it. She just said, yeah, I think, she said, I think they just forgot. But I also think that this weekend we might go to this flea market and I might get a wristband where I get to ride some rides. And she was basically saying, it's cool. But in my heart, it was not cool. Because I had just been at a birthday party the last several weeks and this imbalance of this 10-year-old girl right here in our neighborhood not getting a present Versus some of the other parties that we've been to of other kids that have other situations. I thought, man, this is, this is really hard for me. So we saw her on Thursday. And she came back to the neighborhood table, which was wonderful fun last night. Our first ever neighborhood table. Sharing a meal and Jesus together as a community. She came back Friday night and she ran up to Amy. She goes, oh, you'll never believe it. And after they kind of exchanged some highs and hellos, she says, what? What do you mean? She goes, this morning, I found a $10 bill. And she goes, really? That's amazing. She goes, yes. And you know why I know it's from God? Because it was $10, and I turned 10. And Jesus gave me a birthday present today. I've got to believe, and this isn't a thus saith the Lord, I've figured it all out, but isn't it just like the God who is at work to bring balance where there is imbalance? Isn't it just like the Jesus who calls the little children to come to him, to hold them in his tender care and protection, to do the littlest of little, to work to bring shalom and balance and wholeness and well-being and goodness even in the teeny tiniest of ways when the child has enough kingdom vision to recognize a tiny good gift that meant the world to her. And she said, it was a birthday present from Jesus. This is the kind of work I want to give my life to. To see the fingerprints of God in and amongst our everyday life. And to somehow or another find myself swept along in the flow of the work that has been happening since we turned our backs from God in Genesis chapter 3. He's been working to bring us back home. That's why in our church we have this core practice to bring peace. You may remember the icon with the little dove in the box. Our core practice is this. We commit to partner with God in His mission. Now first, you need to understand that when we go and do anything, we go and join the work that's already begun. We don't initiate anything. You're Sure, we started a cool new ministry last night, and we had paletas, and we had a bounce house, and we had loads of fun and some pretty good burgers. Thank you, Pastor Bud. But we didn't initiate it. We are joining what God is doing because God loves and longs for those people more than we do. God loves and longs for your family members more than you do. We just partner with him in his mission to bring his shalom, that holistic peace and well-being into our neighborhood. We want to name it and we want to, as midwives, bring it and usher it in to our world. We want to be about his work. So how are we doing? How are we doing since we signed our partnership agreement at the beginning of the year? How are we doing as a church in Garland with the other churches? 
how are we doing globally? If we were to Google the church, what kind of things would pop up? Is God's kingdom people known as those who are partnering with Him to bring holistic wellness and flourishing into our world? I think before we can even get our arms around the global ways, it always, always, always starts at the ground level in relational ways. So I want to spend a moment in our next chunk. Do we fit this description? I know that these are descriptive and not prescriptive, but if we did a gut check, in our everyday lives, are we partnering with God who is bringing balance where there is imbalance? The Jewish word for son. In Matthew chapter 5, they use the word sons of God because it's a concept that is used in their culture. It was used in their Old Testament. The Jewish word and concept for son is used to connect a person to another person or attribute, right? So you remember some other disciples, the sons of thunder, There was something about them that was like some early first century WWE wrestling team that sounds like an awesome tag team to be the sons of thunder. There was something powerful about them. You also heard Jesus call some people, you are like sons or children of the devil, the evil one. There is something about you that looks like the chip of the old block. So when we talk about Jesus describing the peacemakers who not only join the family business of working towards shalom, they also ought to bear a divine resemblance. When Jesus says the peacemakers will be called children of God, it's not because they watch all the right and clean movies and they go and shop at Mardell and they go to church. No, no, no. In their lives, they bear the resemblance of one who is reconciling and bringing all peoples into flourishing and love. When they see the church, they should say, you are making peace and making strides and reconciling and loving and forgiving, and it looks just like that one who was hanged on a cross. You're a chip off the old block. You bear the divine resemblance. We learned what reconciliation looks like and peacemaking looks like from our Father who sent His Son, Jesus. I love the way Colossians puts it. Paul wrote this in his letter to the church in Colossae. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Christ. Can we just pause there? If Christ Jesus is this water bottle, a five-foot-five Palestinian, dark-skinned, bearded, homeless teacher and healer, God was pleased to pour all of Himself into the receptacle of someone who just looked ordinary. But there was something about Jesus that was so compelling, so life-giving, that He was the light of the world, revealing us the face of God Himself. And he was sent to earth, Paul continues, so that through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You need to understand this. When we turned our backs on God and turned that chair away from Him, where we once had a face-to-face relationship with God, God did not turn His back on us. You've heard it said in so many sermons that because of Genesis 3 and the fall and turning our backs from our first parents, we're born sinners, we're born with this evil behavior. Yes, that's true, but then you heard it said that God and His wrath 
is angry and upon you. And I'm here to tell you, why would this same guy, Paul, that talks about Christ, who is the fullness and face of God, who is reconciling to himself all things, then he says, once you were alienated from God, then in 2 Corinthians, what we read earlier, he says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Understand that the alienation started with us. God, in his heart, was never alienated. God turns around and comes back face to face and says, I'm giving you another chance. I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to forgive. Come to me. Come to me. You've heard it said, God hates the sin and hates the sinner. I say that while we were dead in our sins, while we were dead in our transgressions, while we were deserving of wrath, God, not in wrath but in love, sent Jesus to reconcile the world to himself. It's a big difference to say that God had to slaughter Jesus so that he could get over it, so that he could finally welcome these sinners and these stanky old humans. It's a big difference to say that, and that's the gospel that's out there so often. And another difference to say true to the New Testament in which we say, no, 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 no. God didn't have to be reconciled to us. He brought the world to reconcile them to himself, to see who he really is, to see what he's really like. And in that seeing, we might see the ways in which we've blown it and find forgiveness in the one who reconciled the world to himself. Do you see the difference? Maybe this is why too many of us grew up feeling ashamed, and even when we were told that God has washed our sins away, you still felt like ashamed and a loser, and you'll never measure up. And I want to tell you, you can never outbelieve the love of God. I want to tell you, you can never outrun your belovedness. I'm here to tell you, you can never outsin your identity in Jesus Christ. And when He sees you, And he wants you to be reconciled again and again when you keep turning your back and keep turning your back. Understand that he's already waiting for you before you ever take a step. Jesus told a story of a father looking to the horizon, waiting for his son to come home. And he didn't turn to the elder brother and beat the tar out of him to get it out of his system before he could hug the younger son. The father, in Jesus' story, runs to the horizon to meet the one who he had loved every moment of every day, regardless of how far away alienated he was. We learn reconciliation from the one who is the great reconciler, drawing the world to himself in Christ Jesus. So when he says these peacemakers will be called children of God, they're the ones living into the divine resemblance of the one who over and over and over tries to make peace where there is brokenness, tries to forgive where there is pain and sin. So when Jesus says they will be called children of God, that's because the reconciled, those reconciled to God, will be called children of the reconciler when his kingdom comes in fullness. When Jesus, who came once, comes again to renew all things, finish the work that he started of reconciliation, when the kingdom comes in fullness and he'll wipe away every tear from every eye and all sickness, disease, and death will be swallowed up and done with and we will live in him and we will see him as he is he's going to say of course you're my children you've been living in the kingdom on earth just as it would be in heaven welcome and well done my good and faithful servant the reconciled to God and the reconciled to others are called children of the reconciler when his kingdom comes in fullness Jesus didn't just make peace between the world and God Jesus made peace between humanity At the beginning of chapter 4 of Ephesians, another letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What he's basically saying there is, hey, because you've been reconciled to God, live like it. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And here's how you live like it. Ready? Verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Stay with me real quick. He's describing the peacemakers 
but who brought the unity? Are we supposed to make the unity? Make every effort to make the unity? That's interesting. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So many other times in Paul's writings, he keeps reminding this little ragtag group of people that would be fewer than those in this room that they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit resides in them. He has united them together. And so here's why I want you to know this. Sometimes peace isn't just made. Peace has to be maintained. To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You need to understand that when Jesus Christ broke down the walls that divided the tribe, he was doing that to build up one new humanity. So the degree to which we say we're us and we're right, and those Catholics, those Orthodox, those Methodists, those Baptists, those Presbyterian, those fill in the blank, we are participating in the discord and the strain on this unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. The message of the New Testament The message of Ephesians is there's one Lord, one people, live like it. The message of the New Testament, there's one new people, try to get along, live like it. The message of Jesus when he prays, Father, that they would be one, it's because our unity should be a message to the world. The kingdom call then is to turn from retaliation toward them who believe different, them who look different, and to work toward reconciliation, even though it's costly. The kingdom call, clearly, over and over in the New Testament, is to turn from retaliation and to work toward reconciliation, even, and I'd say especially, though it's costly. Because then it shows to the world how serious it is and how much God is about shalom, because it's going to cost me and it's worth it. So the more that we... Divide. Let me ask you this question. Is the church today known more often as peacemakers or peacebreakers? What does it say to the world when we drive down the street and we see every brand of church there could possibly be? What does it say to our neighbors when we kind of undermine and talk about those Christians? I think this is why when Paul is talking to the church in Corinth and he's saying, quit suing each other. Quit uh, like living this life together that doesn't look like Jesus. These people that are not united and not on mission, they need to go be with their people. And I think that is where there's a clear line of us and them. There's kingdom people and there's not kingdom people. So let's, let's bring those people into the, the kingdom. But if they're not living like it, let's, let's try to separate and be united together. I know that, that, that sounds pretty half-baked. What I'm trying to convey to you is there is really a pull and an arc toward the New Testament that is continually saying, try not to let the little divisions divide us. Because the more that we divide, deride, and demonize, the less we bear the divine resemblance. Peace must be made when not maintained. I love how Scott McKnight says it. The peacemaker as the person whom Jesus blesses, seeks to reconcile, not by pretending there are no differences or by suppressing differences, but by creating love of the other that transcends differences or that permits the people to join hands in spite of differences. Sit a minute with that. Now I'll give you the TNC mantra translation. Can we disagree without disengaging? Can we keep Jesus at the center, not only in what we believe, but how we believe it, and give each other humility and grace as we follow him together? Now, thirdly, 
What are some ways that we can live into our family description? How might we live into this kingdom vision of our family business and our divine resemblance? I'm going to give you some super practical ways in which we can live this thing in unity together. Then I'm going to tell you a story and a quote as we wind down together. Now, I shared these practical tips in February when we were talking about our core practice of bringing peace. But because I didn't remember everything I said, I trust you might not either. And I need reminding of this. Perhaps you might find some of these descriptions, how to live into it, helpful for you too. You ready? I think the first thing we need to remember to bring peace, to make peace, to live into that description is in heart attitude. In heart attitude. This is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5 when he's talking about blessing persecutors, forgiving enemies, and then when he tells the stories of loving all people as neighbors, seeing in the face of our enemy, brother, how is this achieved? It starts by coming alongside them in prayer. I had somebody consider me an enemy for a long stretch of time. And what happens when somebody thinks you're an enemy and talks to you like an enemy is you begin to kind of live into that description. And you begin to be at enmity with them. And so what happened is when I would try to sit with Jesus in prayer, this person would keep coming up and up and up in my mind. And I felt this subtle shift when I began to see this person. But not just see them, like see their face in my mind's eye, but see them knelt down at the front of this building in this room with their arms outstretched with tears crying out to Jesus. Began to shift the way I perceived them. And then in prayer, I would come alongside with them, first as an observer, but then to kind of kneel with them. And in part, because I'm like, are you serious, this person? I could never imagine this person doing this. But I knelt down beside him, and it began to soften my heart. And wouldn't you know it? It softened my actions toward them, my words toward them. Did it cost, and did it hurt? Did they perfectly make it okay the next day? No, but it changed me, and I felt swept along in the family business of shalom-making. Second way is in short accounts. In premarital prep, we always talk about conflict because to be married is to be in conflict sometimes. Surprise, surprise. Guess what? To be in relationships with anybody is to be in conflict. A conflict is anything that requires a resolution. So it's not just that you're going around fighting people all the time. It's that what do I do, how do I process when I am hurt or when I do the hurting? And I love these three questions. I didn't make them up. I got them from our friend J.R. Briggs. These are some kind of processing questions. And I love to think of these on the back end of hurt or hurting others. What do I need to own? What do I need to confess? What do I need to let go? What do I need to own? What's mine? What do I need to pick up and take responsibility for? Two, what do I need to say, confess that I haven't, that I've been withholding? And thirdly, what do I need to just drop? What do I need to let go? I think these are pivotal and primary relational questions that help keep conflict from growing so exponentially. You see, conflict is like a tumor. It's harder to deal with the larger it grows. And tensions and resentments, if not checked quickly, just become these albatrosses, these elephants in the room that years down the line are almost impossible to start to chip away at. That's why you've got to do it immediately to nip it in the bud as quickly and as often as you can. Thirdly, in sacrificial action. Here's another set of practical heart attitude, kingdom, community calls. 
The first is to resolve conflict. This is what we were just talking about. A lot of times it's easier not to say anything, not to make peace. But Jesus says, no, you're blessed when you step into the fray and you follow and work in the kingdom family business. The second thing, and I want you to make note of those scriptures there on the screen. Just so you get what I mean, as impractical as it is, this is what you signed up for, folks. Secondly, refuse retaliation. Cannot, again, stress how vital this is throughout the New Testament. I think this is why that nascent, oppressed, early Christian community grew and thrived so much because not only did they turn the other cheek, but they walked miles with their oppressive police state. They also gave clothes off their back. And it confounded the world around them because they were living in the upside-down kingdom vision of Jesus. And they continually refused to retaliate. Martin Luther King famously says, violence begets violence. What would it look like to break the cycle? Can I just do a quick public service announcement? Stop telling your kids on the playground to punch them back. Because when they're 22, they go to jail. (laughs) And what's stronger to persist in the frustration and the hatred and to, it doesn't mean that they stop. That just means you're going to fight on Tuesday because this kid is so ticked that you fought back. That's the conventional Texas wisdom. That if you punch him back, he won't mess with you anymore. Dude, he's going to bring three of his friends and mess with you even more on Tuesday. What would it look like to break the cycle, to stand up to them in a way that's more creative than smacking them back? It's going to be really hard to train your children in the way of Jesus when they're 25 and to tell them not to go haul off and make war with somebody when they look back to when they were 10 years old and you said, man, just toughen up. That's ridiculous. Break the cycle and show them what's really strong, to show them that you can stand up in a way that doesn't put them out. I think this is only possible thirdly when you release the hate. This is what we were talking about a moment ago. To see in the face of your enemy, brother, sister, friend. I want to close with a story and a quote. One of the ways that someone did this in seeing their enemy as brother is recorded in this wonderful little book called The Irresistible Revolution. It's by a guy named Shane Claiborne. This is a memoir of sorts about his adventures with following Jesus. Shane Claiborne is an activist, an author, a preacher, and a peacemaker. But he's also a self-professed red-letter Christian. He's a guy that takes the red letters that Jesus spoke and the ways that Jesus lived very seriously. And he calls himself and his band of folks living in urban Philadelphia ordinary radicals because they believe that Jesus just didn't want us to say it. He wanted us to live it, even when talking about making peace. So Shane Claiborne, with the ideas and ways of Jesus, left the U.S., for Baghdad. And when he left the U.S. for his little trip to Baghdad is important because he went in March 2003 in the fallout of the September 11th terrorist attacks and shortly after some of the early movements and missions in our war on terror. He went to Baghdad when everybody else that had a brain was leaving Baghdad. Or the people that were left in Baghdad had nowhere else to go. He traveled to Baghdad in March 2003 with the Iraq peace team. And this is what's interesting is, as I said earlier, I think global peace is always rooted in that ground level relational peace. So he went to expand his vision of what it looks like for the people caught in the crossfires. And then to, as a peacemaker, step into the fray with them. So what he found surprised him. He would visit birthday parties where bombs were going off just miles or two away and the parties would resume. People living their lives, going in and around hospitals with doctors and nurses working shift after shift after shift. 
And they would see him as an American, and he's a pretty crazy-looking American. At that time, he had these long dreadlocks. And they would look at him as if to say, do you see what's happening here and the fallout caused by it? And he's learning in humility what it looks to just be a peacemaker that steps into the middle of these conflicts. He was also surprised to find loads and loads of Christians in Baghdad. Middle Eastern Christians, native Christians. So on his trip, he was invited to these church services almost every single day. He and the people and his team. But he tells the story in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, of one of these services in particular. He said hundreds and hundreds of Christians from all over the Middle East had gotten together in Baghdad. Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox. And then they read a statement from the Christian community directed to the Muslim community. These Christians in the Middle East declared that they love these Muslims And they believed that these Muslims were created in the image of God. See, all night I've been talking about Genesis 3. Y'all remember in Genesis 1, God created all humans, our first parents, in the image of God. There is some divine spark in each and every person, six or eight billion of them on this planet, that are made in the image of God. And they made a statement of peace and love toward them. So then they all gathered and they sang the familiar songs like Amazing Grace. They said the Lord's Prayer in all the different languages represented in this gathering with all these different kinds of Christians united together. Then they set up a huge cross and they led the whole group to this cross and then they prayed a prayer together in Arabic and English and all the languages similar to the one that Jesus prayed when he himself was on the cross. There they are, Iraqi and American, praying, Father, forgive us, for we know not what we're doing. Hundreds and hundreds more kept trying to get into this service. They ended up gathering outside with candles. After this service, he was talking with one of the bishops. And Shane Claiborne confessed, man, I'm really surprised that there's this many Christians here in Baghdad. He says, brother, this is where it started. This is where the Jesus movement started. Well, they went on in their conversation and the bishop said that the church was deeply concerned about the church in the U.S. So he said, many Americans are for this war. How's the church doing? So then Shane Claiborne began to nod, and he knew it was coming next. So the bishop asked Shane, what are the Christians saying? And Shane says, my heart sank. I tried to explain to him that many of the Christians in the U.S. are confused and they hope that this is a way God could liberate the Iraqi people. And then the bishop shook his head and said very humbly, but we Christians do not believe that. I thought we believed blessed are the peacemakers. We believe that if you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. We believe in the cross. And then Shane says, tears welled up in my eyes as the bishop looked at him and said, so we will be praying for you. We will be praying for the church in the United States to be the church. Elsewhere, Shane Claiborne writes this. The only thing harder than hatred is love. The only thing harder than war is peace. The only thing that takes more work, tears, and sweat than division is reconciliation. But what more beautiful things could we devote our lives to? Until the courage that we have for peace surpasses the courage that we have for war, violence will continue to triumph. And imperial execution, rather than divine resurrection, will have the final word. Church, starting in our relationships, in our city, would we work with kingdom vision 
to see God's shalom, holistic peace, as the final word, instead of death and division and hatred. Kingdom vision sees an enemy as a brother, a sister, a neighbor to be loved. Kingdom vision sees reconciliation as our family business, even when it's costly and it's hard. Kingdom vision sees our divine resemblance in the one who reconciled the world to himself and calls us to carry the ministry of reconciliation, announcing to the world, be reconciled to God, and then to live reconciled as God's people. May it be with us and the church universal until the whole world is full, just as it would be in heaven. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for being God's people together. And we confess the ways in which we struggle with teachings on peace and forgiveness because we struggle with peace and forgiveness. So Lord, would you give us creative and radical ways forward that we learn from you in order to bring good news to be bearers of peace in a divided and broken world because you have made peace within this church. May we keep the peace. And where there is not peace and discord, may we keep the unity and go out and make your kingdom work a reality because we've yielded to you, our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if y'all would please rise and receive the benediction. May you be blessed in the midst of God's love, blessed in the midst of our world, blessed in the midst of your everyday lives. May you be blessed even in the times we find it hard to see the blessing. When you stand in the middle of misunderstanding, hurt, and hardship, even then we can know ourselves as the children of God, especially then. God has blessed you. God has called you. God has given you what you need to take up the family business, to bear the divine resemblance to call others to be reconciled to God, even as we are reconciled to one another. Go in peace with the Prince of Peace. Amen.